Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Over the last couple of years, as you know, as someone we've really enjoyed speaking to and whose brains it's been my pleasure to pick along the way has been our next speaker. Um, unfortunately, by the way, Gajendra Singh uh, has been coronavirus and can't join us. So I'm filling in. So, you know, make it that way you will. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> what we're going to do um, is talk about the Indian Army. And it is my great pleasure to welcome to the stage here in the briefing tent, Rob Lyman. Rob Lyman. <laughs> welcome, Rob. Morning, Gajendra. <laughs> So, Rob, we're going to talk about the Indian Army. And I think it's worth starting by basically saying, what, what is it? In 1939, what is the Indian Army? Is it, is, it a, is it a gendarmerie? Is it a professional army? Is it a border force? And, and also, I think really importantly, for the politics of the time, who's paying for it? Fabulous question. Well, I'm going to, we have to really dive back deep into history to really understand the Indian Army in 1939. The first thing to understand uh, is that it's almost exactly the same as the British Army. The Indian Army existed for purposes of imperial defence. It was the imperial, uh, as was conceived in London, it was the Imperial Fire Brigade. Um, it was not the British Army. The British Army was entirely different, entirely separate. Um, but they they... Um, developed on parallel paths since uh, the end of the First World War in 1922, particularly when the Indian Army was restructured. Um, you also need to understand a little bit about the British Army as well to understand the Indian Army, because hands up those who know anything about or have heard of Cardwell. Okay, quite, quite an educated audience. I'm very pleased to see all those hands going up, because Cardwell actually frames the Indian Army. We can't really understand India without Cardwell. Cardwell was the restructuring of the British Army in the 1980s to ensure that um, the, the empire was sufficiently well defended. And Caldwell basically said, we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, British infantry and cavalry regiments, uh, which would have two parts. One part, one battalion, would, the second battalion would uh, be permanently posted abroad. 
and the other battalion would be in the UK for training and recruitment purposes. So it's really important, actually. I'm going to spin this a little bit and talk about the BEF in 1939. Really important to understand that the BEF that went out to France in 1939 were the training and recruitment cadres for Cardwell for an army that was designed to support India. Now, just get your head around that. Okay, when we constructed the first and second uh, divisions to go to France and the the two TA divisions... They were not designed as an expeditionary force. They were designed to support India. And it's really important just to get this in your heads right at the start because it's taken me many years and a lot of my Indian friends have been pushing this at me and I I really get it now. Britain existed for India. India didn't exist. Uh, India didn't exist for Britain. The idea that we see that India was a was a satellite of Britain and the British Empire. No, it was an Anglo-Indian empire run for India. And it's really important to understand the Indian army because the British army through the 1920s and 30s was an imperial gendarmerie. At the end of 1919, uh, the war-to-end-all wars uh, clearly had finished. Everyone breathed a great sigh of relief. This is really well documented um, and lots of memoirs. and, and, um, And the Chief of the General Staff in 1926 saying... You know, we'll never fight a war like that again. You know, we're, we're going to revert to 1914. The role of the army is to defend the empire. And, and, and there's a sense, isn't there, they can get back to proper soldiering. Exactly. Let's, rather let, than let, fighting. Let's, yeah. go, let's go back to proper soldiering. And uh, look, let's not go down that rubber one. It's a really fascinating one, uh, which we don't have time for. But it, it, it does have resonances. So think about the British army in the 1920s and 30s, and you've actually got the Indian army. Indian Army, 1939, comprises um, a few dates I'll chuck at you in a moment. But in 1939, we've got an army of about 190,000 in the Indian Army. Let me just stop there and say the Indian Army is not the British Indian Army. Don't go to Wikipedia for this. It's the one page I haven't managed to change. It's the Indian Army. It's the legally constituted army of India. Now, India is constitutionally, and I'm going to use the word with a little eye, independent. It's its own country. It's got its own governance structure. It's got its own legal structure, largely inherited, of course, from Britain. The final recourse of authority, because imperialism is about power, it's not about race or ethnicity or any other that sort of stuff, it's about power, is London. So yes, it's a colony, but it, to all other intents and purposes, in terms of the way India works, it's independent. It has its own army. The British army is entirely separate. We had a British army, and in addition to that 190,000 men, we had 55,000 British army troops in India. They were the the second half of the Cardwell uh, partnership. So in India, we had the army in India. That's the British army. And we had the Indian army. They didn't operate together. They had different pamphlets. They had different uh, barracks. They had different command structures. They reported up ultimately to uh, southern and eastern and northern commands uh, to GHQ India. But actually, it's a very, very strong it was a dotted line to GHQ India and a firm line to London. So you need to understand that as well. Two armies working the same country, in the same continent with two different tasks. So Al's used the word gendarmerie, and that's absolutely right. The British Army and the Indian Army were both gendarmeries. We had lost our warfighting capability. That's a story for next year. I'll talk to you about how the British Army lost its warfighting capability in the 1920s and 30s. That's the book I'm writing with Richard Dunn at the moment, and it's really exciting. But <laughs> let's come back to this. So it was a gendarmerie. The big threats to India were, were not the threats that actually evolved. And this is the really extraordinary thing about defence planning in the 1920s and 30s. If, you, if you're really going to do your defence planning well, think about what might happen. Well, no one thought that the Japanese might invade. 
Actually, very few people thought the Japanese, well, the Germans would invade in Europe. Well, and, and in, 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 the, in the 20s, when the uh, Chiefs Imperial General Staff was sort of formed, that they're at one point kicking around the idea that there might be a war with France. Yeah. What do we do about America? And, and they can't entertain the idea that Germany or Japan are, are, are potential threats. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. The, it's not that they're looking in the wrong direction. They have no idea which direction to look in. It's, it's about, and this is another really uh, interesting rabbit warren here, and we'll just sit on it for a little while. It's about imagining what might happen. So one of the purposes of strategy is to think about, is to imagine, yeah, worst case, what might happen in the future? Because we've got a lot of navel gazing that needs to go on to define force structures. How are you going to construct an army if you don't know actually what you're going to end up fighting? Uh, and how are you going to fight? So it's really important to do the imagining first. Well, we didn't really do it in the 1920s and 30s. We didn't have a defence doctrine directorate in the army. Uh, no one. There was a lot of good pamphleting going on in India as well. But actually, no, who reads pamphlets? And and it didn't. Those pamphlets didn't um, drive doctrinal change in the army. The, the biggest doctrinal thing that happened was mechanisation. Mechanisation is not not doctrinal. It's industrial. And, and the doctrine came out of mechanization. Anyway, I say that because the Indian army wasn't mechanized. So let's go back to the subject. 1939, the Indian army was a manpower-based army. Its primary concern was the northwest frontier because we had this idea that the Russians might actually come through. The great game been going on for a century and a half. The Russians might come through. So it's a bit of an excuse for having an army in the northwest frontier. Two major tribes in the northwest frontier um, who basically uh, were whipped up every now and again by the uh, Afghanis on the other side of the border. Uh, border. We had a war with Afghans, Afghanistan in 1919. Uh, but this was, the, this was the area of most uh, tribal discontent. And a significant part of the Indian army was designed to, um, to guard the frontier and to fight the frontier. And a significant part of the British army, the army in India, was designed for the northwest frontier. And it was a great platoon commander's posting it was that's that's the sort of thing as a young officer you really want to do you want to get out there and 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 um have a little argy-bargy with Patan tribesmen because that's exciting um you don't want to fight a real war that can be quite difficult um <laughs> 1939 we have so i need to just go back and talk of a few changes so if you have this um there's a wonderful photograph of whiskers somewhere um uh, so if you have this concept of the Indian army as being anything uh, like this, then you've, you've lost the plot. But the Indian army transformed itself in, from 1922. It restructured itself to, to be much more usable. And there's a big debate in military circles about what armies are for. If you think that an army is simply for a utility, utilitarian purpose, you design an army around what you think it's going to need, that's good, but it's only part of the part of the issue. You actually need an army to, for deterrence purposes, but that's for next year's talk. Um, what, what we what we have actually here is a whole bunch of Indian soldiers who are not mechanised, who are based on a 1914 infantry pattern. So 40 men in a platoon um, with three sections, a platoon commander, and basically rifles and bayonets. No grenades, no machine guns. Infantry battalions do have machine guns, 16 Lewis guns, but they're held as a battalion asset. Most soldiers have never actually heard a machine gun fire by the, by the end of the 1930s. Um, and they're designed for India. Uh, so 1922, restructured the Indian Army, basically got 20 regiments, 150-odd uh, battalions, 45 battalions of which were designed for internal order, so paramilitary purposes. They basically militarized the civil power. Quite a lot of um, civil disobedience in the 1920s and 30s as the 
Quit India campaign uh, rises in um, and and develops, and so a significant portion of those troops are designed for that. There is no concept that actually the Indian Army might have to fight abroad. Now, 1937, 1938, the Indian Army was another bit of restructuring took place to create a deployable force. It was known as the Fourth Indian Division. This is under a remarkable man, the, the father of the Indian Army. That's a book. That's about three or four books' time. Yeah. Claude Auchinleck. Claude Auchinleck. You know, he is a great man. He recognizes that the army needs to be much more useful. And so in 1938, we have the Fourth Indian Division. We have an agreement with Britain. Uh, India pays for the Indian Army, by the way, and India pays for the British Army in India, which is another reason why the British Army is in India, because it doesn't cost Britain any money. So I had to answer that question. Yes, well. <laughs> and uh, so what we have is that Claude Auchinleck says we need a deployed division in order to integrate the, the Indian Army uh, with British troops with whom it will work, but also to do jobs the British Army is too stretched to do. It's a really important function of thing to understand. The British Army through the 1920s and 1930s dramatically overstretched. It can't do, can't do uh, everything that the government requires of it. Commitments are going up. The money that's available for the army goes down. It all goes to the Navy and for buying bombers that are badly designed and actually useless because bomber theory is a theory. It's not... A, Anyway, that's another story. The good book by Adrian Phillips on that, actually. Um, so we've got a, we've got an army that um, uh, the Indian an Indian army that is being rapidly changed from 1938 onwards because Auchinleck recognises that the utility of the Indian army might be called on, and if if it's called on for a global conflagration, it won't be ready. So, so Rob. Um, uh the officers evidently are, are, are British. Not all of them. Not all of well, them. Well, but the people making the people making the, the these, oh, yes. these decisions yes. are British. Are they British Army officers who join the Indian Army, or they or do they go into the Indian Army? Do you choose after Sandhurst yeah. or, or Woolwich? It's great. It's great. Let, let's let's really sort of knock this on the head. Uh, the Indian Army decided it needed officers. It didn't have any officers of its own after the mutiny, so it. It inherited a number of these uh, India Company, the John Company officers, but it set up a, an MOU with the British government to provide officers because John Company used to have its own uh, officer training courses in the UK. And from then on, uh, army officers for the Indian Army were trained at Woolwich and Sandhurst. And the best officers, you had to be in the top 30 at Sandhurst and the top similar number at Woolwich, which trained gunners and engineers to join the Indian Army, which is why Montgomery always hated the Indian Army, because he wasn't good enough to join it at Santa. <laughs> and, um, but it, it's true. You joined, you were commissioned, you were given the, a commission, the King's Commission, into the Indian Army. You weren't in the British Army. Just, you know, you were, the two armies were very separate. They ran in parallel lines. They talked to each other. Of course they did. But, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about the Indian Army through the 1930s was that you have a really considerable um, sense, a really dramatic sense amongst the viceroys. And they, they've got a bad name, but actually the viceroys are very, very pro-India and, and pro-India being independent. It's, it's an, an unusual point. There's only one viceroy in this period who was very Churchillian. All the other viceroys and the, chief, the commanders and chiefs of India uh, were, were very... Uh, um, exercised about creating an army for India and for India's purposes and not Britain's. And it's really important to understand that. 
So if you joined the Indian Army as a young officer, you had a 30 or 40 year career in, in the Indian Army. There were no, oh, there are very few secondments um, from one to the other. There were secondments in the medical field, so doctors. There were secondments in some of the specialist fields. The big challenge in the late 1930s was mechanization. India was not mechanized. Very few, only the Maharajas had cars. I mean, no one else drove. I mean, it was very different to the UK where uh, access to cars uh, really was quite uh, dramatically increased in the 1930s, which meant the British Army had access to drivers, which meant that our mechanization process worked reasonably well. didn't happen in India. There, there was no manufacturing base in India for cars and, and vehicles and so on, which was a real challenge when it came to um, uh, training uh, young soldiers how to drive vehicles. It was, there's some very, very amusing stories about it. The, the armies were completely separate. I'll just complete this point about the, uh, the Indian Army in 1939. One of Auchinleck's commitments also to the British Army was that he would, the Indian Army would provide six brigades to uh, areas of empire where um, there was a security concern. So two brigades were committed to Singapore, two brigades were committed to uh, effectively Iraq and the Red Sea, um, and two brigades were committed to North Africa. They be- they became the the colonel, the the K E R N E L of the colonel's hair the colonel um, of the 4th Indian Division. So by the time war began in 1939, India had thought about um, mobilizing for a global uh, conflagration. Although in 1940, when Auchinleck asked London what the commitments London had thought about for the Indian Army, uh, he was told there weren't any. Um, we don't really think the Indian Army is going to get involved in this war. I mean, this is striking, isn't it, Rob? Because, as you said, that, 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 that in, back in Britain, there is no coherent strategic view. Yet in India, people are thinking, right, what, what are we going to do if the, it, it, when, the, when the balloon goes up? And so they're, they're, they're ahead. Yeah. And, and the, thing, the interesting thing in, in, at Keta and in India is there is, there is an intellectual... Um, uh, tradition developing, isn't there? And, there, and, and there's some pretty good debate yeah. and some bright people at Keta teaching and, uh, and, and writing. Uh, I mean, Francis Tuca, who we've talked about in the podcast, features very heavily in this, in this phase. Uh, I think I'm, si- I'm sitting on my pack. That's what the problem is. No, it's, no, it's me. It's definitely me. And Tuca's assigned a training role, isn't he, at this point, uh, because he's known as a good trainer. So Orkinlek's clearly thinking, I'm getting no direction from London. Exactly right. I mean, Fantas Tuca, he wrote a book in 1947 called The Pattern of War. It's, it's, you know, you need to read it. It's really revelatory. When I was doing my PhD many years ago, I sort of found this on a shelf at the university and I took it to my um, tutor, lovely guy, Thomas Otter, and I said, look at this. This is going Because tu- Tuca describes maneuver theory, so how to actually win a battle operationally. And, uh, and, and it's absolutely incredible. So the Indian Army is producing some quite dramatic thinkers. Uh, the problem with the Indian Army at the time is that they're focused to the West, not the East. So they're focused on Persia because uh, an extension of the Indian concerns in the 1930s is, the, is basically Iraq, Iran and, and the Arabian Peninsula because it's the part of the link in the empire. So all the thinking in the 19, early 1940s, well, actually, until the Japanese arrived and, and sport the party at the end of 1941, was we need an army to be able to defend our interests in uh, the Horn of Africa 
and in um, Mesopotamia and in Iran as well. I remember oil plays a significant part in the thinking here, but it's the communication of India, uh, communication of the empire. And through the 1920s and 30s, you'll see there's quite a lot of books published about the sinews of empire. There's the idea that the empire exists through the mechanics of trade, which is why the navy was important. And so... India was focused on that. And in the early years of the war, of course, um, India sent, um, immediately raised the 4th and the 5th Divisions, the 5th Ball of Fire Division, was sent to the Horn of Africa and was involved in um, fighting against the Italians in Abyssinia, have heard of the Battle of Karen and so on. Quite, quite remarkable uh, early blooding of the Indian army. Um, and, and also into uh, uh, Mesopotamia, so Iraq in 1941, and, and all those extraordinary... Uh, stories of 1941 and, 90, and uh, in Iraq and Iran. And if the Japanese hadn't turned up, that would have really defined the Indian Army's role in the Second World War. And it would have stayed in that state, wouldn't it? It wouldn't, it wouldn't have undergone... Because, I mean, it's a three-part story, this, really, isn't it? It's where you start in 39, where you get to by, by the end of 41, and then this sudden um, redirection of, of, of purpose... Of recruitment, and then and then, obviously, the, its political locus in, um, in with the Quit India movement going on, and this idea that we that we see in all that we see in all the allied communities that are having to fight, where basically there's a deal, and there's a deal between the citizen soldier and Indian soldiers are citizen soldiers, even it, w- within their polity, they yeah. are. Yeah, they are. Um, uh, they have agency. Exactly. I mean, uh, and so. What becomes central to what happens after 1941 is is this deal? Is this is the deal between the army or the state, you know, or the the, the Indian state to be, and the soldier, right? So it's so all that's absolutely right. The big the big transformation here is, of course, the Japanese, and we'll we'll let the Japanese speak for themselves in a moment. But if you think about the, what the transformation is, we're talking about uh, from 1940. Soon after the uh, London says, "Well, actually, you're not going to need. We're not going to need you in Europe. We, you know, we we think we can deal with this ourselves. Um, to take responsibility for the Horn of Africa. Thanks very much. Take responsibility for um, for securing Mesopotamia, and and then later on in 1940, run. There's some f- fabulous stories about that. Of course, this is where Slim comes along for the first time and and puts his head above the parapet and uh, and and develops some of this thinking and and so on. Um, but we have an, uh, an Indian army that's actually no different in concept and construction, but much larger. So there's a very, very large recruitment program beginning in 19, 1940, but a recruitment program for an army focused on the Middle East. So it's an army that's not necessarily, not very mechanized. It's basically more soldiers with rifles and bayonets. So no, no restructuring of the army, no introduction of machine guns. You know, it was just a larger army. And it had no trouble recruiting, really, really quite extraordinarily. Even though the enemy were regarded to be the Germans, um, there were no um, uh, significant recruitment campaigns in India. This might surprise you. The recruitment campaigns were largely poster-driven. A thing that I haven't mentioned about um, the Indian Army was that until 1939, it was largely constructed from what the British had described after the mutiny as the martial races. So it's, it's an entire, and, and there's a lot of really good um, published research on this, it, it's, a, it's a massively self-constructed idea that we, the British, uh, constructed about what Indians were loyal 
and and what Indians were not. And there was this idea after the mutiny that the North Indians, the Northeastern Indians, so basically those who now occupy Pakistan and the Bhutans, the, the tribal um, races and the Sikhs, uh, and of course the Gurkhas, were much more loyal than anyone from the South or the Southeast. So the Madrasis uh, and Bengalis were just not uh, recruited into the combat arms of the army. Uh, and that, that's just a, a feature of... Um, the Raj. Actually, I don't like calling the Raj. All the veterans I used to talk to made this point. We never called it the Raj. They said we called it the Sertar. It was just the government. The government. Raj has connotations of imperial direction. And, and actually, if you, the more you study India, David Gilmore's very good on this, you realize actually there was very little governance from above. It was governance from below. It was There were lots and lots of moving parts in, in India, in the empire, all colliding and all coming together in order to be able to create the power base that enabled India to work, because it's about power, not race. Power, remember that. Um, so the big, cha- the big change that Al has alluded to is the Japanese. Now, blimey, this is quite extraordinary. The Japanese emerge on the scene December 1941. They're very fast. They launch a very, very quick, efficient, effective campaign in Malaya under a magnificent general called Yamashita, and they take Malaya very quickly. They slice through the Allied defences. It's, it's, a, it's a misnomer to even think that the, the British had defences in Malaya. They had troops in Malaya. It's very different to having defences. Having an army doesn't mean that you've got an ability, the ability to use it. Having troops doesn't mean that you've got the ability to use them. You need both together. And we all know what happened with um, the fall of Singapore. We then know what happened with the fall of Burma. Now, the shock of the Japanese way of war transformed the Indian army. It transformed the British army as well, because no longer were we facing some ragtag enemies in Mesopotamia, uh, some ragtag enemies in Iran, or some ragtag enemies in the Horn of Africa fighting the Italians. Now, let me not dismiss them uh, as, as valiant fighters and all the rest of it, but they were not the Japanese. The Japanese brought a new dimension to fighting that completely discombobulated their enemies in 1942, Americans and Australians and so on. And the story of the, of the war in the, year, in the year and a half that followed was the, was the story of the rethinking, the rebuilding, the reconstruction, the revisualization of what was necessary to defeat the Japanese. And it was a dramatic shock. I don't need to tell you that here. And that transformed the Indian army. Without the Japanese, the Indian army in 1945 would have been the gendarmerie that it was in 1940 and 41. How did it change? Well, 1942, of course, we had an army in Japan that had been fighting in China for quite a considerable amount of time. It understood um, operational war fighting. So those two, you, you all understand the operational level of war. I know you do because you talk about it endlessly and it's really important to understand that. So the operational level of war is about campaigning, launching campaign, having an objective, having forces structured to achieve that objective, which is largely military political. Um, and having the right forces in, in, that, um, in that force structure. In Malaya and Burma, we had troops, but not force structures. There was no plan to oppose the Japanese, and it's a really important distinction to make. And then, of course, so the Japanese arrived. They'd been preparing for a year. They'd prepared for Malaya for 11 months. They were trained magnificently. Now, let me just let you into a little secret. The Japanese were fabulous historians. And in 1940, General Yamashita, who a year later would absolutely slice through Malaya, uh, was part of a battlefield tour of northern France. 
courtesy of the Germans. And uh, he saw Blitzkrieg at first hand and he came back saying, this is exactly what we need to do against the the British and the Americans in um, in the Far East. If the balloon goes up and, and what we see in Malaya is actually a replication of Blitzkrieg and the, the Japanese were very, very good at it. The Japanese very quickly reordered their um, forces in 19. 19- 41 um in Hainan Island there was a special training team which uh which investigated the use of grenades and automatic weapons in battle because one of the lessons from 1940 in France was automatic weapons the British didn't have many automatic weapons believe it or not machine guns and Vickers um 36 Vickers machine guns and an infantry division you know were often not even engaged in battle when they were required because they weren't in the infantry battalions. It's a long story, but anyway, we'll we'll, um, we'll deal with that next year. So, so <laughs> if if you're fighting a battle and you're an infantry battalion and all you've got are Lee Enfields, and you've got you've got grenades, but grenades out for for the you know the last the last safe moment, you know it's it's pretty basic stuff. And the difference was when the Japanese arrived, they had platoons and sections that were. Uh, heavily populated with automatic weapons. So I told you that an infantry platoon in the Japanese army in 1941 had three automatic weapons. Those of you who have heard me teach or talk about this will recognize that. The, the discombobulation of, on the Indian army, who many of them, just remember, 1940, massive, massive increase in numbers in the Indian army from 190,000 in 1939 to about a million at the end of 1941. The end of the Second World War, the Indian Army had recruited two and a half million volunteers. The end of the Second World War, there were two million men and a few women, 35,000 women, in the Indian Army. So the largest volunteer army. I was actually with Gajendra going to say, welcome to the largest army you've never heard of. It really is quite an extraordinary story, the Indian Army. Transformation. Let's go back to the Japanese. The Japanese demonstrated to the British and the Indian Army in 1941, early 1942, what the British and the Indians needed to do to fight effectively to win. And if they didn't, they would always lose. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, what's happened in, in northern France, if the, Jap- the Japanese are learning from it... Why have those lessons not transmitted themselves? It's a to big it? mystery, and no one really knows. Actually, there's, it's it's quite extraordinary. So there's a the theory of change comes into this. You know, in order to understand change, you need to uh, you need to imagine that something has changed. You need to recognise that something has changed and do something about it. And there's a whole process of change that uh, the theorists of change talk about, and none of this really impacted on the um, the British Army in Europe. It didn't it didn't impact for quite some time. We can say that actually. Uh, the first time we really saw methodical war fighting of the of the type that won over in the Hundred Days Battle in 1918 was Alamein, the Second Battle of Al Alamein in, in uh, 1942, and you know we, we and that's well understood. But you could actually and we do make the argument in the next book um, that actually there's a very long time between the Hundred Days Battle in 1918 and Al Alamein, and we forgot how to fight. We, the British Army, forgot how to fight. Just think, think about that. It's quite important. We forgot how to deliver effective war fighting. War fighting is about pulling everything together and methodically allowing it to work. Artillery, mobile artillery, mobile infantry, tanks, aircraft, radio communications, logistics, all working together um, simultaneously to deliver a single effect. That's war fighting. And just having a large army with lots of men and bayonets isn't, doesn't mean that you can war fight. And this is the lesson the Japanese taught us in 1942. In order to deliver operational effect, you needed a campaign plan. You didn't, it wasn't just about having lots of troops. The British in 1942, uh, in, a, it's a terrible story. It really is absolutely, uh, it's so embarrassing, it's not funny. Um, the, the British under Wavell thought that we could simply walk back into Burma through Arakan, which is the coastal littoral, and, and force the Japanese out. But we hadn't learned how to manage a campaign. We hadn't retrained our troops. We simply used the same uh, force structures, basically infantry battalions with rifles and bayonets. Um, and we were absolutely hammered again that, by the Japanese. That first Arakan campaign first Arakan. absolutely shocking. And when you read the accounts of it and... and and the sort of uh, and and Noel Irwin's resistance to changing what he's trying to do, hu- essentially human wave attacks, tanks deployed in penny packets, yeah. the thing just not joined up at all, and obviously you know the, the, because the terrain and the climate are so sort of disgusting and unforgiving, these battle battlefields turn into charnel houses with with the dead everywhere and the Japanese completely unmovable. And, the, and that strange business of the, the initiative passing completely to the defender rather than the side that's attacking, to the point where, um, you know, the, the entire offensive collapses in on itself and the Japanese look like they'll roll the British and Indians up altogether. And 
when, when you read when it's you very read depressing about, it's an incredibly depressing camp, campaign and it falls into definition of madness of trying the same thing over and over again and, and expecting different results there were 11 11 brigade attacks on Don Bike. 11 yeah. successive attacks one after the other that just repeated themselves through those horrible last months of 1942 early 43 Going back to change theory, it's really interesting. Some of you will know, know this. In order to have change theory, you need this. You need the concept of disruptors. You need people in the process of thinking about change who are happy to break things and, and ask the difficult questions about, well, why don't we do something in a different way? The, the big disruptor actually was Slim. And it's Slim, Slim was not invited to the Arakan party, fortunately, because it, it meant that he was able to keep his nose clean. But actually, he was... Owen tried to blame Slim at the end for... It was bizarre. I've actually got a chapter in, in The Generals, which is... It's for sale, I think, in the, in the bookshop. It's quite, and, one of those books... And you'll that, be signing those at quarter past I'll, 10, I'll, I'll sign them after this, yes. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's worth reading. It's, wor- it's worth understanding our disaster in order to be able to then look at how things change. Because actually, this is when things start getting good. What the Japanese did, and I, you, those of you who have heard me talk about this before will sort of recognize this. The Japanese uh, in, in 1941, 1942, was it really the last the last lash out, their la- the last gasp of their empire. We have this idea that actually it was the, the Japanese empire was, was at its, its height and it was dramatically successful and it was only bad luck that got on the way. You know, Japanese were on their last legs in 1942. We need to remember that. And they, when, when they sort of overreached themselves in Southeast Asia, they sat there exhausted. They lost the strategic initiative. They didn't in the Navy until Midway, in the Pacific until Midway. But actually on land, they lost the initiative and it gave the Allies time 1943 was the time the allies gave us and we had a dramatic transformation in the indian army so all of a sudden the uh, the the uh, the view of the indian army shifted from iraq and iran and it shifted to the far east and there were some really really dramatically impressive um thinkers in the indian army at the time not just all slim who's thinking about his campaign planning that's really really focused on but people like reginald savory who was responsible for training we had the savory um committee the uh, which sat down. There was anyone heard of the Bartholomew Review? Have you read the Bartholomew Re- the Bartholomew Report? Right, go online. It's it's on National Archives. You can download it for free. The Bartholomew Report was the report on the BEF in 1914. It was a few months later. It's the most embarrassing review you've ever seen because they didn't even ask all the basic the right questions. The Indian Army did ask the right questions. And the Bartholomew Report's only about 40, 50 pages. You read and you think, bloody hell, you know. What planet are you on? You know, we've just lost a massive campaign to the, the Germans and all of France. And you're not asking the right questions. It's all about very basic things. And is the water bottle big enough and that sort of stuff? Um, <laughs> the Indian Army asked all the right questions. And the first, the first question was, are our troops up to it? No, they're not. They need more training. So i cut this short. They then introduced a training program of nine months. My son at the moment in the Army is training Ukrainians. 18 to 50 year old conscripts from Ukraine and uh, in the British Army it's a big training program here it's not secret it was announced last week but these guys are coming over for three weeks in 1980 when I did my basic infantry training it was 29 weeks and and even at the end of that 29 weeks I was knackered I thought there's still a lot that I don't know these guys in Ukraine are getting three weeks the Indians gave them the Indian Army did a, re, a training program of conscripts no sorry not conscripts that's not true of volunteers nine months and it's now focused on fighting the Japanese in the jungle this concept of um, 
battle inoculation. Battle inoculation was invented by the British in 1940 and 41, and it was then translated to the armies that, if you read Monty's Men, you'll know uh, the army that went into North Africa was an army that had been fantastically thoroughly trained for this job. Exactly the same thing happened in India in 1943. Battle inoculation, we had nine months of infantry training. Their best officers who were going through selection in the Indian Army were selected for the infantry. That was one of the, re- one of the recommendations of the Infantry Committee in 1943. Um, and at the end of that nine months training, everyone then did two months inoculation in the jungle. So before you even saw a Jap, you had 11 months training, very, very large, about a million men trained in 1943 to fight the Japanese. The Japanese gave us time. We had the people in India who were thinking about this. Now, this is a very interesting little point that I didn't realize until I wrote my book. Oh, it's a war of empires. It's in the bookshop. Um, there's a whole chapter on this. Do, do, do take a copy. I'll be there in a little while, and I look forward to signing them. That actually, the British Army and the Indian Army had completely separate doc- doctrinal piles. They created... Even during the war, they created their own jungle warfare pamphlets. They didn't talk to each other. They were completely separate. This autonomy between the armies was maintained even worse. It's bizarre, isn't it? But it's, it's, it's how it worked. And I think it's because the Indian Army had the better thinkers. And the, the Indian Army were thinking about fighting the Japanese in the jungle and the British Army weren't. So the British Army produced the jungle warfare. They were always about six months behind the curve. They talk to the Australians as well, don't they? And so what you've got is, is in India... Uh, um, a sort of open door to other ideas, which the British Army never quite, never quite gets there, does yeah, it? It's, um, it's it's quite extraordinary, and it's it's not. I mean, I'm not. I don't blame the British Army. The British Army actually, um, what percentage of the 14th Army in 1945 was British? Tell me. I said of the 14th Army, not Siek. 10%. It's 10 percent of the 606,000 men and few women in the 14th Army and 15 Corps, that's basically the operational land forces, 606,000, exactly 10% were British, 87% were uh, Indian and 3% were African. In SEAC as a whole, Southeast Asia Command, 1.3 million men, 58% were Indian and only 8% were British. In fact, there were twice as many Americans in SEAC. We all think that this was a British campaign, twice as many Americans in SEAC, uh, than uh, than Brits, but it's a really important point that it was not a focal point for British thinking, but it was a very important focal point for Indian thinking, and the Indians thought it through dramatically. So, cut a long story short, when when the crunch came, and in February 1944, we ended up uh, engaging the Japanese on basically equal terms. Um, the British and the Indian soldiers trained relentlessly through 1943 were able to demonstrate that they basically, at every point of the compass, they were able to beat the Japanese. A really, really important point because through that period of 1942, we had developed this idea of the Superman. It was the only way to excuse our ineptitude was to say that the enemy was Superman. They weren't. They were, they were very good. They were very brave men. I'm not going to take anything away from the Japanese um, but there were, they had lots of points of failure, the Japanese. And we're not here to talk about the Japanese army, but you know they were very easily beatable. And that's the great um, story of 1944. The Indian army, and it's largely the Indian army, recognized how to beat the Japanese. The story of 1944 is really quite dramatic because actually in 1944-45, we're now going to the third part of the, the, the story, there were two parts to the engagement. The first was, let's beat the Japanese in the tangled, knotted hills of uh, Manipur and, the, and Assam around Kahima. And let's smash them in face-to-face battle. And the British were involved in that, the second division at Kahima, but it was largely otherwise an Indian battle. 
And um, the, the Indians actually came out of that thinking, you know, bloody hell, we're, we're actually pretty good at this. We, you know, the Japanese aren't the... I mean, there were some wonderful memoirs, and one in particular, Shenham um, Saddle, on the hills leading out of Palau and Imphal over, over towards Tamu, of day after day of Japanese mass attacks. And the, and the boys waking up in the morning, oh, we've got this again, so let's load the brain guns, make sure they're lightly oiled. And they would just kill hundreds and hundreds of Japanese at no loss to themselves. And it all, all became, they became very blasé about it. Um, and and there's, a, there's a point that the Japanese stopped fighting and started killing themselves. One thing the Japanese army was very good at was killing their own people. And that's the, that's the point. That's the point at which the army realized, actually, we don't need to put ourselves we don't, in harm's way here. We can use other things to k- allow the Japanese to kill themselves. And, and a, what the Japanese army started running out of ideas and Japanese commanders on the whole very, very poor in 1944, better in 1945, but very poor in 1944 under Mutaguchi Renya, um, made all sorts of crazy mistakes. But the Indian army demonstrated it could defeat the Japanese and it then did something quite remarkable. In a matter of about two and a half months, three months at the outset, it mechanized itself. One of the big arguments in 1942 was whether you could use tanks in the jungle. And Slim had kept on saying, yes, of course, of course you can, because he had seen the 7th Armoured Brigade uh, through the retreat uh, working fabulously and basically com- creating a combined arms doctrine with the retreating infantry and, and the Chinese, who are often left out of our discourse. Actually, the Chinese saved the British Army in 1942. It wasn't for the Chinese. Uh, anyone here Rana Mitta yesterday? Wasn't he marvellous? I'm a bit of a part of Rana's fan club. But um, Rana's absolutely right. It's really, really important. We, we in the West just don't understand the importance of China. We don't understand how important China was in 1942. And if it wasn't for the Chinese army, we would have lost Burma in 1944, uh, 1942 completely. And, and when Rana asked, he was asked the question, who was his favorite general? I was going to shout out, it was not fair, it wasn't my talk. Uh, Sun Li Zhen. Sun Li Zhen? Anyone know Sun Li Zhen? You should be ashamed of yourselves. Sun Li Zhen was the... Chinese divisional commander taught in America at the war, great English speaker, who com- basically commanded the active Chinese divisions in um, Burma in 1942 and saved Britain's bacon time and time and time again. He was given a CBE. Uh, it was unauthorized. I know I'm going down a rabbit one. This is a very interesting one. Um, Slim said to um, Alexander, who was the army commander at the time, we need, to, we need to give this guy a medal because without Sun Li Jen, we would have lost this war. So um, Slim and Alexander had a conversation and, and Alexander said, well, what should we give him? And Slim looked at Alexander's chest and said, well, give him that rib- ribbon. It was the CBE. So they got a pen out and, and a pen knife out and they cut off the ribbon of the CBE and they gave it to Sun Li Jen. And Alexander got a rocket, but the king very shortly thereafter, authorized the award of the CBE to Sun Li Zhen. I mean, it's a marvelous story. It really is quite extraordinary. We need to know more about this. So the, I'm going back to where I was. My point is the Indian army then mechanized. It didn't just mechanize by getting into trucks. It mechanized by getting into tanks. Yeah. And these were Shermans. These were priests with 105 millimeter guns. And there's another story about logistics we haven't got time to go into here. Um, it really is quite an extraordinary story. They adapted within weeks. Boys who had ne- who'd come off a, um, a farm were put into a tank and taught to drive. We then had, by 1945, the Indian Army in Burma had three full tank brigades, two of Sherman's and one of Lee Grant's. It had 45 artillery regiments. I mean, it, it, 
unbelievable, a mixture of um, field artillery, anti-tank, anti-aircraft artillery, um, operating in Burma, 606,000 men. It was one of the most formidable fighting forces the Allies even produced in the Second World War. And it was completely joined up. And I, I realized this a couple of years ago when I was sort of looking at ground-to-air uh, um, relationships and understanding, trying to understand how they work. Do you realize that for the four months, the last four months of that year, sort of from February to May 1945, there was a 20, well, I call it 24 hours of permanent. In the hours of daylight, a cab rank, of fighter ground attack aircraft above the 4th Armoured Corps in Burma. It's, it's very well recorded. It's quite extraordinary. They were kept in, uh, in contact. They had effectively an aerial forward observation observer. They had Austerlite aircraft as well, um, coordinating the, the, uh, the movement of the troops on the ground. But they were aircraft above who were called in whenever the boys on the ground wanted them. So my point about the Japanese sort of Banzai attacks in 1944, the whole operation in 1945 was... You know, the, ar- the armour and the infantry move up with their kangaroos with infantry in the back and the 105mm Prisa had mobile infantry, mobile artillery and tanks moving to Mectila and beyond. Um, opposition would be uh, identified. A, 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 an attack of the line of march would be launched and the cab rank would be called in. And there's a marvellous, marvellous um, pathé. You can see it on the Imperial War Museum website at um, a footage, very little cinematography from the war, by the way, but in the last few months, some brilliant footage of um, the integrated, these integrated combined arms battles taking place. One at Pinway, which is fabulous. It's just about 60 or 70 miles out of Rangoon. You can walk around it today. And it's just amazing. You can actually see the tanks, the artillery, uh, artillery fire coming in. You see the hurry bombers coming and dropping their 250-pound bombs. The, you see the tanks coming into the village. You see the infantry behind and then launching attack into the village and lots of smoke, and they come out the other end. It really is quite remarkable. But, but, but I mean, this reaches its climax, this sort of mismatch at the Battle of the Sitan River Bend, doesn't it? Where, where is it 19,000 Japanese are killed for the loss of 96 yeah soldiers, uh, uh, Indian Army soldiers, because they've, they've reached the point where the combined arms is, is, is per- perfected and the Japanese simply have no answer to it. And, and whatever, the, and, and you, as you said, in 45, their generals are getting smarter and they, they aren't doing what, what uh, Slim's predicting they're going to do. And they aren't, they are, you know, they're giving up ground rather than hanging on to it. Yeah, and, and, that's Kimura, a very smart guy, yeah. Kimura, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, but, yeah. but he, even then, there's nothing, he can, there's nothing he can do about where the Indian Army has got to by 1945 in terms of its effectiveness. It's a really good point. Just bear in mind, the, the Ger- Germans, if I ever mention the Germans, you, mean, you know I mean the Japanese. <laughs> Sorry. I, there's, there's something in here that I've got half the brain Germans, half the brain Japanese. Um, Japanese still had 308,000 men in Burma in 1945. They had, a huge, they had a huge army. They had five times the number that Slim had. Slim out fought them. Don't forget that. This is not a numbers game necessarily. It's about how you use your forces. Um, uh, the, 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 the fourth armoured corps, Frank uh, Messervy's armoured corps, and the 33rd um, uh, corps as well were absolutely slick as anything. I mean, I, 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 one day I'm going to have this little challenge and, and I want to work this way. I want to game this. I want to be able to take the fourth armoured corps and I want to pluck it out of Burma, and I want to stick it into 21st Army Group because I could bet you bottom dollar they would be they would have been unbelievable, slick as anything, and they would have done really really well against the Germans. But it's 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 about how you use your forces. The Stang Band is is right the denouement of all this. The the Japanese, of course, pressured out. It's a fantastic story uh, about how SOE really dramatically 
enabled Slim to achieve what he needed to do by taking Rangoon without SOE and without the Karen uprising in March and April 1944. Simon here. I hope Simon Lee needs to your hand up. No? Simon's not here. That's terrible. His father was an SOE and was one of the, the men dropped into... To, um, uh, I know I'm being told to shut up, but you, you, you'll enjoy this story. Look... <laughs> SOE was fundamental in transforming the outcome of the war for the Allies in 1945 because they trained and raised about uh, 12,000 Karen villagers who had been sitting there for years waiting for, to, to fight the Japanese and told to wait, 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 wait. Um, and the Japanese were then trying to get down to Tungu, which is the primary city, a primary town on the Satang River. If, if the Japanese could hold Tungu, they would hold the 14th Army. The 14th Army would not be able to get to Rangoon regardless. Regardless of Br- Slim's brilliance, it would not have happened. And so SOE, which was under Slim's command, uh, initiated the Korean uprising, and they killed more Japanese in those hills in those two months than the um, 4th Armoured Corps did. About 14,000 Japanese were killed as they were trying to get to Tungu. It was absolutely quite an extraordinary story. Anyway, Satang Bridge, or Satang River, the Japanese were trying to get back into Thailand and a massive escape. But actually, we had also broken the Japanese codes. We had also, uh, there's quite an extraordinary story about uh, SIS as well and the Code War, which uh, has largely remained subliminal. We know a lot about it through Bletchley Park in Europe, but actually we had a Bletchley Park in um, India as well. There were only two men in India who had access to the Indian intelligence. Slim was one of them. It's quite extraordinary. Only two. It was so secret. It was quite extraordinary. It was only recently been revealed. Anyway, um, so here we have the transformation of an army. It's really quite an extraordinary story. And it happened very, very quickly. And I keep reminding people, you read Monty's Men, John Buckley's amazing book. Think about the transformation of the British Army in 1944. Think about that brand new army. These were boys who were in short trousers at the start of the war. It wasn't the professional British Army that defeated the Germans. It was a conscript and volunteer army trained specifically for a task that fought for 11 months through Europe and did it brilliantly. Ignore all those people who say that we fought badly. We actually fought, the British Army fought very, very well in 1944-45. And it's exactly the same. It's a mirror story with the Indian Army in 1944-45. A brilliant army, well-led, brilliantly trained, with the most extraordinarily daft challenges thrown at it. I'm going to give you one challenge. Those of you who have heard me talk about this before, just, just hear me out again. The distances involved in fighting were just unbelievable, and they're really hard to comprehend. Uh, Prit will like this. Um, Prit. Prit, yes, my fellow on Stand up, Prit. There's an opportunity. Prit Batar. Everyone give him a round of applause. Go, go and buy Pritt's books as well, by the way. He's another fellow Osprey writer. Osprey, there we are. Os- uh, Osprey... Fun- um. Yeah, they're not sponsoring this tent. Well, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> next year, next year. Anyway, it's... Where was I? Tight bastards. <laughs> <laughs> We're saying the distances. OK, here we go. The, the, the distance. So by the time that Slim and his amazing army got down to Rangoon in 1945, the line of communication stretched all the way up through Burma, through, across Manipur and, uh, and Assam Hills, through Kahima, down to the Brahmaputra Valley, through the Brahmaputra get to Guwahati, and then down to um, um, Calcutta. Calcutta was the Calcutta and Chittagong were the two main sources. Chittagong less so because it's a mountainous route northwards. Anyway, so we're talking about effectively an 800 mile journey by rail and boat and one road, 
um, into Mandalay, uh, into um, Tamu, another 400 miles from Tamu on the Chinwin to Mandalay, another 400 miles from Mandalay down to uh, Rangoon. I add that up as about 1,800 miles. 800 miles, that's fair enough. It's the same distance as London to Moscow. You're trying to fight a battle in Moscow from London. And actually, the only thing that really makes it work, Indian Army, absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I will bow to the feet of the Indian Army in 1945. It was air power, but that's another story. We'll talk about that another time. I think we've probably run out I of time. I think we have run out of time, Rob. <sighs> there we go. Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Lyman. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, fantastic. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.